because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. Well, as I promised at the end of last episode, if you listened to it, I have a very exciting discussion planned this week. And let me just give you a tiny bit of background on it. So for the past two or so years, I've been very adamant about this idea of what I call decriminalizing nuclear energy. And the basic premise is that nuclear has this unbelievable potential. We've seen a lot of historical success before what I call its criminalization. And it's this crazy thing because it's unlimited potential to improve human life, to expand the supply of low cost reliable energy and to do it far more cleanly and safely, including with virtually no CO2 emissions, which is what everyone in the world claims to care about. And yet we have just made this like almost a total non-starter in terms of a significant growing part of the world's uh, energy. And uh, my main frustration has been, you know, talking to the nuclear industry, talking to people in the field, it's very hard to get specifics on what should actually be done to liberate or decriminalize it. So I was very, very happy recently when uh, uh, someone I'm a longtime fan of, Robert Zubrin, he wrote Merchants of Despair, which I love. You know, he's been on the show a couple of times. Uh, he sent me this manuscript, which is as yet unpublished. It actually doesn't yet even have a publisher called The Case for Nukes. And I got around to reading it and I thought, wow, this is by far the best thing I've ever read in terms of specifically analyzing what are the things holding nuclear back and then putting forward a blueprint for liberating nuclear that, that could really actually be done. I've been talking about it ever since with different elected officials I work with, and I really wanted to share it with the public, with my audience, so that we can really move this forward. Robert has done some amazing work here, and I'm really eager to showcase it and share it. So Robert Zubrin, welcome back to Power Hour. Thanks for inviting me. My pleasure. So let's start off with the history of nuclear. And, and you know, this I want to put this in the context of um, this came up. I think this came up this weekend. I was debating this guy, Andrew Dessler, who's a climate scientist who's become really focused on energy policy. And, you know, he has this refrain of, you know, nuclear is so expensive. And this has just become a kind of uh, refrain, particularly on the left. And my understanding, and certainly amplified by your book, is that if we look at the history of nuclear, there's abundant evidence that it could be as cheap or even cheaper than any other source of energy. So could you talk about that history and why you also have this confidence? Yes. Well, um, you know, nuclear power um, was born first out of the Manhattan Project, and then following that, the creation of the nuclear Navy, and uh, then Eisenhower's Atom for Peace program in which we would take the technology that had been now made practical in the form of uh, engines that could drive submarines and ships and use it to power cities and uh, put the tremendous power of the atom at the service of humanity instead of just as a weapon of war. And um, it, it took off. It was immediately successful. Uh, the design that had been developed by uh, Rickover and his team for powering nuclear submarines was and is extremely robust um, because you see, to have a nuclear reaction sustained by low enriched fuel, uh, the neutrons have to be slowed down. That is moderated is the term that is used because the neutron is actually more likely to interact with a nucleus if it is going slow than if it was going fast. And so what uh, Rickover did was he said, well, we're gonna make the moderator be water, which will also be the coolant. 
And if the reactor gets too hot, the water will start to boil and there'll be holes in the moderator and the reaction will shut down. And this is a drop dead infallible method of negative feedback to control a nuclear reactor. It is physically impossible for a pressurized water reactor to ever have an uncontrolled chain reaction. It can't be done. You couldn't make it happen no matter how hard you try. And the and as a result of this, uh, while there have been over a thousand pressurized water reactors or related types, um, can do boiling water reactors, they're all fundamentally pressurized water reactors. Um, uh, on land and sea, for the past 65 years, not a single one has uh, ever had a runaway chain reaction, or frankly, any other accident that harmed anyone uh, outside the plant gate. Um, it's an unparalleled record of success, and it's built into the physics of the thing. Um, now, so these things started to be built in the 60s in large numbers, and by the early 70s, uh, we were starting a new nuclear reactor in this country twice a month. Wow. That's how fast we were going. And if, if it hadn't been for the policies introduced by the Carter administration, which was anti-nuclear, uh, and had many individuals in it that were affiliated with a, a Malthusian organization at the time known as the Club of Rome, um, the, uh, the United States would have completely decarbonized its electric power grid right now, by now. It would, in fact, would have decarbonized by the 1990s. The, the, we would have, the decarbonization of electric power would be something that happened 30 years ago, okay? Just as it is the case that France did that, okay? Um, France had uh, a nuclear power program, which had uh, uh, support from uh, pretty much all wings of the French political spectrum, ranging from the Gauls to the communists, and they just did it. And, um, and it is only France, and uh, I think actually Sweden as well, uh, that has largely decarbonized its power grid, and they both did it with nuclear power, because nuclear power is a fully reliable way to produce electricity. Uh, and um, and not only that, uh, it is immune uh, to geopolitical cutoffs. Uh, the, the only other reliable way to produce electricity is fossil fuels, but they do require world trade uh, to uh, adequately supply many of the countries that use them. And uh, we're seeing this, of course, in, in Europe, the weakness of its strategic position in that, uh, especially Germany, which chose to shut down its nuclear power plants and make itself dependent on Russian gas and oil, um, basically making themselves dependent on people who were dedicated to, are dedicated to their conquests, uh, which is not a good idea. Uh, so, so let's talk about the, just to go back to the price issue. So definitely, you know, we've established it can be done uh, mm -hmm. reliably, you know, it has a bunch of advantages. It can be done very safely and cleanly. Now, France, my understanding is, Rel I mean, certainly lower cost electricity than Germany. It's not lower cost historically than the US. But it, so if we go back to when these plants are being built, are you saying that we would have gone all nuclear for, for purely economic reasons? Uh, well, yeah, um, the, except in, I mean, sure, hydroelectric power in the Pacific Northwest, you can't beat it, okay? Uh, but we would have been uh, dominantly uh, nuclear. Um, and so what's the is, evidence for that? Well, the evidence for it is, in fact, 
um, nuclear power did completely replace oil as a method of producing electricity in the United States. Uh, in the 1960s, oil was responsible for producing uh, over 20% of American electricity. Today, it's 3%, and nuclear power went from negligible to 20%. Uh, that, that was uh, the major shift. Uh, the, look, the thing is that in the 60s, it took four years to build a nuclear power plant, okay? Four years, okay? And in fact, the shipping port power plant, the first one took three years, and the four years was the typical construction time. The Carter administration implemented regulatory changes, which we'll discuss, which has expanded the average time to build a nuclear power plant from four years to eight years and then 16 years. Uh, and a study was done in the 80s when this process was uh, quite evident by uh, a professor, uh, uh, Bernard Cohn, uh, and I quote uh, aspects of his study in my book, which showed that the cost of building a nuclear power plant goes up as the time squared to construct it, okay? Because you see, it's not only that you have to keep paying the workers no matter how slow the job is going, but the more time there is, the more lawyers get into the game. Uh, and they're a lot more expensive than electricians. Uh, and, the, uh, and then also you have the NRC actually making changes in the design after it's built. And if you've ever done a home improvement, for example, you, you would know that there's nothing more expensive than changing your mind about what should be built after it's been built. Uh, and this is what's been imposed on the nuclear industry. So, you know, really with experience with building nuclear power plants, the time should have gone from four years to two years to build a nuclear power plant. Instead, it went from four years to 16. And, uh, and I should add, however, that it still only takes four years in China or South Korea uh, to build a nuclear power plant. Um, and once again, it should have gone down, not up. And the, this is, so and then there's been other things uh, on the basis of um, really political vandalism is the only way to describe it. Uh, capricious decisions by uh, political leaders, uh, it's become extremely difficult to finance a nuclear power plant. But for example, in the 1980s, there was built uh, the Long Island Lighting Company built the Shoreham Nuclear Power Plant. It was at the cost then of $5 billion, which is like $10 billion today. Um, and it got all done and it was ready to go. And Governor Mario Cuomo, the father of the Governor Cuomo, who was until recently Governor of New York, um, said, I'm not going to let you open it. Project, just forget it. We're not going to let you open the plant. And therefore, it became a dead loss. Uh, the, uh, the plant had to be sold to the state for $1 and then destroyed. Uh, the entire investment was lost. And when something like that happens, that sends a signal to anyone who's going to invest in any other nuclear power plant anywhere else. Um, you know, hey, you're taking a big risk here because you could get everything done and then still not be allowed to operate your plant. So there could be nothing more destructive than that. Um, yeah, so that, I mean, that's like it takes 16 years or it takes infinity years in uh -huh. a certain sense. Um, so to go back to the economics, you know, one, one thing you mentioned in your book is you estimate, so maybe today it takes 5 billion or more, I'd emphasize more to build a gigawatt nuclear reactor. You estimate that it could be built for 500 million. What, what gives you that confidence? 
because that's the kind of money it takes to build one in a nuclear submarine. Uh, the, they don't, the, the, the reactors of nuclear submarines and nuclear aircraft carriers do not cost $5 billion. They're smaller, uh, right? The- well, they're smaller, but that's not really the, the, the reason. The reason is they build them and they go in and they don't take 16 years to build one. Uh, and they're not subject to a process which is incredible. I outline it in, in, in uh, my book. The NRC itself has a 32-step process for getting approval of a nuclear power plant. And each of those steps, or most of those steps, bring in other agencies with multiple step processes to accomplish it, including most notably the Environmental Protection Agency, which is uh, completely infested with anti-nuclear activists and which frequently, for instance, imposes on the plant uh, for approval of its environmental impact statement, uh, a requirement to prove that the uh, utility could not have done anything else. Imagine, if you will, that you're trying to, you have a piece of property and you want to put a log cabin on it, and you go to the local authority for the building permit. um, And the authority doesn't just look at your plans. uh, They ask you, uh, please present a proof why you couldn't build something else there. Why didn't you build a chalet or a Cape Cod or a pet store or, you know, or anti-ballistic missile base. I mean, there's an infinite number of things you could have built on that land. Prove to us that this was the best way to use the land. That's almost an impossibility. But, and let's say, however, you do do that to the satisfaction of the authority. The decision is then subject under the current regulations to intervention by outsiders who don't want you there. And they bring it to court and challenge the authority's approval that your decision to build a log cabin on that was uh, rational. I mean, this goes on forever. It's an impossible situation. If you want to kill an industry, this is what you do. And this is what the Carter administration did. So let's jump into what I want to jump into, and we'll talk about some more of these obstacles, but let's talk about them in the context of solutions, because as I said, that's what I really love about your book. And so uh, I think most of these things are are specifically in your book, maybe one or two are ideas I got from your book. But uh, so if you disagree with anything I say, let me know. But one, one thing I definitely got from your book is the idea of combining the licensing process for construction and operation and limiting it to two years total. Could you talk about what the problem is and then how this solves it? Well, there's a real problem if they give you permission to construct your plant, but then leave open the possibility they'll never give you an operating permit, which is how Governor Como destroyed the Shoreham nuclear power plant. Uh, In other words, how can you mobilize finances to build something if there is no assurance that you're gonna be allowed to operate it? Okay, this should be one process. And then furthermore, the Environmental uh, Protection Agency should not be involved in the permitting process at all. Their role in this and many other things, I should add, should be prosecuting people who cause environmental harm, not making people convince them in advance that they cannot possibly do environmental harm. Okay, because that process is like, you know, you want to take a road trip and you have to go to the police in advance and convince them that you're not going to speed. Okay, the correct 
way to enforce any set of regulations is you promulgate the regulations and they should be clear, okay? And then only people who violate them uh, should be prosecuted as opposed to having to prove in advance that nothing you do would cause environmental harm to the public. So with the licensing and, uh, and construction, give us a sense of how long that takes and how that's expanded over, over the years. Well, it's become impossible. I mean, because first of all, uh, first the utility has to create what they call an environmental impact statement. And that could take about a year. Okay, but there they make their case. But then instead of the NRC then approving it or not, or stating what needs to be changed in order for it to be approved, okay, they then develop an environmental impact statement that goes to the EPA. And the NRC is required by law to get this done within two years, but they don't. Um, they just don't. And what are you going to do when they don't? Um, there, there's no law controlling them. I mean, there is a law, but they ignore it. There's, and they can take five years. And then it goes to the EPA, which can take much longer. And then furthermore, this whole process has involved in it, both at the NRC and the EPA, numerous places where, quote unquote, the public can intervene with its point of view. So this is like you want to open up a business and it doesn't go to just the town council to approve or not approve your, your plan to have a pet store on the corner of Maine and First. It, it goes there and then all your competitors can come in and play a role in the process. They are precisely the people who should not have a role in the process, okay? The, 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 uh, the government authority should be there to simply protect the interests of the public, not of individuals who are hostile to your business for private reasons. Um, in fact, the government should be there to protect you against uh, interference by people who are hostile to your business. They should be there to ensure that you can go into business and compete on legitimate terms with other businesses, okay? That's where the public interest lies. Public interest lies in competition, who can provide the best services, okay? You know, so this is, uh, I mean, the analogy I use in my book is the process that occurs in, in Russia where um, somebody wants to build a hotel and they get started, but eventually their competitors go to the city council and they haven't pulled the, bis the, the building permit. And whoever has the most influence within the corridors of power can destroy the other person's business that way, as opposed to the public deciding who has the better hotel by patronizing the one that offers the better value. Um, and so this is, this is, uh, a completely improper system uh, and uh, abuse of government. And I have to say that the, you know, um, and this is documented very well in a book that I'm sure you're familiar with, um, Michael Schellenberger's uh, book. Um, Apocalypse uh, Never. Yes. Uh, we goes into how in the, the, the 70s, okay, the first set of interests that were endangered by nuclear power actually were fossil fuel power plant interests, okay, because oil was, as it were, the, the low fruit on the tree for nuclear to take away their business, 
because uh, they were more expensive than coal or, or, or gas. Um, and they funded the Sierra Club and a number of other groups to go after the nukes. Now, in the more recent period, we've seen uh, actually uh, um, the, well, we've seen some of the natural gas people go after oil and coal and using environmentalist frontmen. And of course, we've seen the so-called renewable energy bandits going after all the fossil fuel people. Uh, so this is just, uh, in other words, these environmental groups, you have to understand, okay, there's, there's two things about them. One is they have, they are a political force which has been gathered around an environment of deindustrialization. Okay, so their legions will support anything that looks like deindustrialization. But the leadership now, having put together a force of this nature, have it available for sale. Um, in other words, so now you get mercenary environmentalism where the targets get chosen on the basis of who is uh, providing the money for the campaign. And these are, I mean, it's important. These are massive businesses themselves. I mean, many of these, you just look at what Bezos just gave tragically, in my view, some of these organizations, he gave National Resources Defense Council like $100 million just at once. And then uh, World Wildlife Fund, I believe also $100 million. And many yeah, many of these, of these have, many of these organizations have multi-billion dollar budgets. Um, and yes, and, but, you know, they are interested in, in revenues and they can get them by, using their, their legions to destroy targets that are of interest to their sponsors. Um, and so, for instance, the Natural Resources Defense Council and the Environmental Defense Fund, who allegedly are concerned about the existential threat of global warming, uh, were both very active in shutting down the uh, Indian, power, uh, Indian Point yeah. nuclear power plant, and they brag about it. And they're trumpeting their recent success in getting the um, Nuclear Regulatory Commission not to issue uh, uh, license renewals or shortening the term of renewals of a number of nuclear power plants. Um, so here are these people. Now, why are they doing this? Well, because if they say if there's going to be a clean energy mandate, it's got to go to our sponsors from the solar and wind crowd, okay, uh, and not nuclear. But Shutting down Indian Point, did that significantly increase the amount of wind power in New York State? Well, no. Uh, it, what it did, well, frankly, the difference had to be made up with coal, uh, which was exactly the opposite of what an actual environmentalist who might be concerned with global warming would want. But from their point of view, if they get rid of the nuke, okay, the coal is sitting in duck, okay? Um, for decarbonization, clearly, right? So that's it. So, uh, and, and more broadly, I would say the greatest vehemence of the environmentalists, it has been against nuclear power. And, you know, I'm by education, a, a nuclear engineer, I have a PhD in nuclear engineering. I've only done an actual limited part of my career in the nuclear field, but, but that's where I started. And I debated Sierra Club back in the 70s and 80s. And, you know, they're there saying, you know, industry is horrible. It, it uses fossil fuels that are going to run out and they smoke up the world. And I say, well, here's nuclear power. It's never going to run out. It doesn't produce any smoke. And they say, we hate that. And 
And I, I came to realize that the reason why they hated nuclear power the most was because it threatened to solve a problem they needed to have. Hmm. Yeah, I know that's uh, Schellenberger has a very similar idea. Like he, he talks about how it doesn't, like if you have nuclear, it doesn't require you to remake society in this very totalitarian way and these euphemisms like circular economy, you can actually have prosperity and have it be really clean and not have, uh, at least from electricity, these rising uh, CO2 levels. So let me ask about another, uh, well, let's talk. So I would just summarize, it is really catastrophic that you can have these anti-development activists involved in the approval process. I mean, it really is just, it's really amounts to, or half of it amounts to, you know, the actual competitors of nuclear can just sabotage nuclear at will by having these quote unquote environmental organizations involved. So like what specifically needs to happen to eliminate their ability to be involved in this process? Is it just a matter of saying you can't be involved in this process? I, I think they should be excluded from the process. Uh, I, I think, you know, uh, it's like having the public have a voice in uh, whether or not you can build a greenhouse in your backyard. Uh, in other words, you may be in a locality where you have to go to the, the, the town council or uh, for approval, or it's it's superintendent of this or that. Um, and fine, okay, there can be a process there, but uh, it, it, it should not be open to interference by everyone else. I mean, it's essentially anarchy. Uh, I mean, look, it, it goes to a fundamental principle, really. Um, which is uh, the role of government is to create and protect individual rights by protecting each of us from anarchic bullying by everyone else, okay? And um, so, you know, in other words, you own your house because you have a title to it that the police are willing to enforce. So if a gang of bullies come in, you call the police. Uh, the, 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 the. But to have a situation where anyone could go to the police and say, we'd like you to throw him out, you out of your house. Uh, th that's the current situation. That, that should not be had. The police services should not be available for the highest bidder to come in and, and use them to abuse people. Uh, and, and that's fundamentally the nature of the situation here. So uh, I'm not an anarchist. I, I think there should be some government regulation of, uh, of these sorts of things, but they should be not be, uh, the, but people who are hostile competitors should not have a voice in, in these organs to use against other people. The public interest is served by full competition, by the government protecting the ability of people to do legitimate business, provide that they don't become a public nuisance themselves through pollution or something. Got it. Um, you mentioned environmental impact statements and them taking a year. My, I don't know. No, no, environmental should... impact statements uh, take a lot more than a year. What? I thought you had said something about a year in connection with them. I know they can no, this take is, much, uh, much more. Oh, I forget the term. It's, it, it, it's the environmental assessment or something. It's okay. No, this is something that the utility puts together. I see. I see. It, this is the first stage I of the it. process. And that takes about a year. That's in the hands of the utility. Uh, and that's a fair amount of work, but okay, fine. 
explain how you're going to operate and why it won't harm the public. Okay. Okay. But then the environmental impact statement takes much longer. So, so let's say I'm, I'm even questioning this first step, but like what nuclear is so clean, it's compact. It can ver- exist with virtually any species in part because it's compact and it's clean. I don't see why you should have any environmental impact statement. I mean, I, I'm against most of them in general, but I mean, in this case, like there's nothing that can really happen. I mean, you're just building this extremely compact thing. It's got a wall around it. It's just that I don't, I mean, you can have, you know, safety stuff if there's any legitimate safety concern, although even there, it's the safest form. Like why can't we just, I mean, my view is we should just eliminate environmental impact statements for nuclear power plants. Cause I don't think there's any plausibility. And so it just gets all these activists involved. Well, I agree with you in the environmental impact statement. I'm just saying that the, um, the environmental assessment is something much less than that. It's basically it. uh, an organized presentation of what the utility intends to do uh, and making it clear that it can be done soundly. Uh, I, I think that it is a reasonable thing. The, the environmental impact statement, I'm with you 100%. Uh, and um, th- there's all sorts of things wrong with the EPA as well in that um, the EPA judges its um, right to enforce not based on whether any real harm has been done to the environment, but whether someone has transgressed um, an EPA rule, whether it is rational or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, for example, uh, there are parts used in automobiles um, that say in 2015 were not approved, but the part was approved in 2016 for use in automobiles. And the if you try to use the, the part, it's the same part that was produced in 2015 that they now approve, they will go after you for using an unapproved part. In other words, it has no relationship whatsoever to the environmental safety of, or, uh, uh, of the action. It simply has to do with um, maintaining enforcement. And furthermore, not only that, the EPA has its own courts, administrative courts, uh, where the judges are EPA employees reporting to the EPA administrator. Okay, so, you know, this is once again, like Russia, where the judges are employed by the police. Um, It's crazy uh, and uh, it it, it should not be allowed. Um, The, uh, uh, among many other things, also it's it's very difficult to get from the EPA. Uh, It's like talking to the IRS if you're trying to get clarification on how something should be classed or whether this is allowed or not allowed. The person might say something to you, but then they'll say, but look, you know, uh, don't quote me on this because we'll see. Uh, and it's, it's very hard to actually get from them, uh, in many cases, clear um, uh, vocalization of what their rules are. Um, and uh, so that's very difficult as well. Uh, so I think there's a lot of problems with the EPA. Um, and this affects things much broader than nuclear power, as you know. Um, well, let, me, let me jump in with another aspect, which is linear no threshold uh, hypothesis. I mean, yeah. my view is that just needs to be eradicated from right. nuclear the, policy. Well, the linear no threshold uh, idea is that um, if one views uh, radiation as a toxin, that 
if we say that a thousand REMS has a 100% chance of killing a person, then 10 REMS has a 1% chance, okay? And so forth. And 100 REMS has a 10% chance. And this is simply false. Toxicology does not work this way. Um, that is, you know, if you drink one glass of wine in a night um, for 100 nights, it will not kill you. If you drink 100 glasses of wine in one night, it will. Um, the, the um, you know, the, the human body has uh, mechanisms for dealing with toxins, whether we're talking alcohol or radiation. And therefore, uh, long duration exposure to low levels of radiation, in fact, is not harmful. And in fact, there's a significant body of evidence showing that it is, uh, um, helps health uh, because it takes a certain amount of insult to the body's uh, uh, systems to provoke a proper response. So that's why people spend a lot of time outdoors in the sunlight and getting ultraviolet and all that tend to be healthier than people who spend all their time inside. Um, and um, so, uh, so it's, it, it's a nonsensical idea and actually it originated with a very questionable person uh, named uh, Herman J. Muller. Um, now Herman J. Muller is uh, a very curious duck. Okay, he was a geneticist. He was a Nobel Prize winning geneticist. In fact, won the Nobel Prize in 1948 for some of the classical genetic works involving fruit flies. So he's a real scientist, but he was also a communist. Uh, and a eugenicist. Uh, in fact, and he had connections at the highest levels of the Communist International. He actually knew Stalin. And the, uh, and in fact, uh, however, he ran afoul of Stalin, as many high-level communists did, uh, because he proposed to him that the Stalin make use of his power to realize the eugenicist dream of improving the Soviet race by restricting reproduction to the top 1% specimens of Soviet men. And uh, Stalin, whatever it can be said for him, did have some uh, pretty good political instincts and he saw a definite downside to this idea. Um, and so he ordered to have um, Mueller killed, but Mueller was warned by his pals in the NKVD and he managed to get out of the country and he came to the United States. Um, became prominent. And anyway, he um, is the person who proposed this linear no threshold uh, uh, method of regulating uh, nuclear power. Uh, and I mean, I think it's, it's, it's applied to a lot of other things as well. But yeah, I mean, it's just this thing, because you know, it leads to like this idea of, of unlimited regulation is justified because, you know, you're always saving a life by doing some of it. And it's just, you know, if you apply that to anything else, like if you just say, well, uh, you know, you need five bodyguards to go everywhere you can or something like that. Like if, if you prescribe too many, quote, safety measures, everything becomes prohibitively uh, expensive. And, and these these standards are not applied to any other form of energy, which I think is part right. of the originality. I mean, can you yeah. imagine, you know, uh, here's, you know, Advil. Uh, mm -hmm. okay. uh, if you said, well, uh, you know, if you take a hundred of them, you're going to die. One of them is a one percent chance of death. Therefore, it must be banned. Um, the and and it's simply counterfactual. Okay, it simply has no scientific basis. And um, you know, um, 
it's just nonsense. Yeah. So they, you know, banishing this from the government, it's, it's people have tried, but it's, it's so important because I think as long as it's there, it's the underlying driver of, of so many of these other things and this, this unique fear uh, associated with nuclear. One, one proposal you had that I was curious about was making government labs available at no cost for all kinds of nuclear testing. Could you elaborate on this? All right. So uh, here's the thing. Okay. Um, I am not in agreement with um, a certain group of people whose uh, ideas have become somewhat fashionable to say nuclear power would be okay if we had newer and more advanced types of nuclear energy than this, you know, light water reactor, which mm-hmm. is a fossil of Rickover's nuclear navy. Okay. I think the light water reactors have been entirely satisfactory. Um, the uh, they have an unblemished safety record, frankly, unmatched by any other form of energy production. Any. Uh, however, that said, uh, certainly uh, I am open to the idea that there should be a research and development to see if we can't do something better. Uh, and um, there's a bunch of people with a variety of ideas based on a variety of assumptions uh, that have ideas for different kinds of nuclear power plants in the light water reactor. I mean, one thing that's been said is the light water reactor has been such a success that a a variety of alternatives that people were looking at in the 50s and 60s were just uh, eliminated from consideration uh, and that this may have been premature and that perhaps some of these might offer uh, uh, cheaper, you know, um, nuclear power. Fine. Okay. And there have been uh, significant entrepreneurial ventures that have been launched, including some fund by uh, Bill Gates uh, and other heavy hitters to uh, attempt to um, give these ideas a spin. The problem, however, is, um, and, and I will say the Biden administration has, has uh, done well in this particular area and that they have created some DOE funds, the 10 million here, 10 million there to fund some of the more credible of these outfits. Uh, but the problem is having a place to test them. Okay. Now the department of energy has large, uh, reservations as they call them. Uh, these include national labs like Los Alamos, Livermore and Idaho, uh, national lab, uh, and other places, um, where one can set up a nuclear, uh, facility and, and do, uh, testing. And I think these should be made available at no cost to people who are in this field of research so that they can attempt. Are they not available? What's the availability now? Um, It's pretty difficult. Um, uh, I don't know exactly what the availability is now, but I I don't know. Uh, I, I, I know people are having some difficulty getting permission to do this kind of thing. Got it. What do you, so this is an idea that wasn't in your book, but I'm curious, what do you think of the approval process being local or state, given that there's no actual, like, there's no national danger if you're making a nuclear power plant? Well, that's an interesting idea. Um, Now, there are uh, state authorities who are involved in this. So in addition to the feds, there are the state people. Yeah, in addition. Okay. There's always an addition. I have to say, I mean, I was once employed by the Washington State Office of Radiation Protection, 
and we had regulatory uh, uh, overview of the, the nuclear power plants in Washington state, which are quite significant. And also the Trojan plant, which is actually in Oregon, but right across the border and therefore of interest to the state of Washington. And uh, I have to tell you that the state regulators were uh, much more reasonable than the federal regulators. Uh, this tends to be true in a lot of areas, by the way. Um, and I, I think that's of potential interest. Uh, the, they're closer to the facts. We had a situation uh, at the Trojan plant. This, this is a, a good, interesting. Uh, I was going to ask you about this story. This is one of my favorite stories from the book. If you're telling the one, I think you're going to tell about your experience. Yeah, right. There. Yes. The Trojan plant was an excellent plant. And it was built in the early 70s. It was built in three years. It was producing electricity at two cents a kilowatt hour. It was actually competitive, not just with fossil fuels. It was competitive with hydroelectric dams. Okay. That, I mean, it was a great plant. And, but they had a problem. They started to um, experience corrosion in the secondary loop. In a pressurized water reactor, there's the water that actually goes through the reactor, and then it comes out, and then it heats other water that has never gone into the reactor, turns it into steam to go to the turbine, uh, so that the turbine never sees water that was in a reactor. Okay, and that secondary loop okay, was having corrosion. And uh, utility identified the problem and they said, well, we could fix this. Uh, we should just replace these carbon steel tank uh, pipes with the stainless steel pipes. It cost a little money, but they were willing to do it because it was causing them to have to shut down every six months to, to solve the corrosion problem. The NRC would not let them do it. Okay, we were entirely in favor. So were the Oregon people, but the NRC, no. Your license states that it would be done with these pipes. And this is a change from what is in the license. And if you want to do this, you have to apply for a new license. And we're talking now the late 80s, by which time the licensing process had already gone berserk. And um, there's no way that the Trojan people were going to expose their plant to that kind of uh, regulatory free fire zone. Uh, so they just went on with the carbon steel pipe. And, and this is a, a, a problem that NRC prevents improvements. Okay. In other words, in any business, there's always people who are doing the work who come up with ideas for improvement. And if you are prevented from implementing these and improv, you know, as, as they appear uh, advisable, you're, you're causing a stagnation and um, you're harming the existing installation and, and um, well, uh, preventing experience from being gained that could lead to a superior design in the next iteration. Um, and also, I mean, look, one of the reasons why there hasn't been much in the way of nuclear innovation since the pressurized water reactor is uh, not just that the pressurized water reactor works, but to try to come into the NRC with something that's really new. Yeah. Uh, I mean, forget it. Um, so that's going to be another problem that these people who with the new types of nuclear reactors are going to have to deal with. Well, so, so to deal with, so I'm totally on your team in terms of the, I, I just reject the demonization of current nuclear reactors. And I think if you're going to criminalize those, 
the underlying things that cause you to criminalize them are going to cause you to criminalize everything else. So I don't believe in welfare solutions and I don't believe in quote unquote research as if it's going to solve the underlying problem, which is the whole regulatory apparatus, which leads me to my final question is what should be done up to and including abolition uh, with the NRC? You know, because since the NRC, we have not had one plant that has gone from beginning to end in terms of conception to completion. I think the ones that are closest in Georgia are like total price debacles. And we had nuclear power plants before we had an NRC. So yes. what, what should we do up to and including eliminating the NRC? Because it's, it, it's like, a, I mean, it is a poisonous organization right now. Yeah, it is. Um, well, it, eliminating it would be a pretty good idea. Um, if you can't, it needs to be uh, dethroned. It needs to be restricted to enforcement to when harm is done. Okay, which is sort of how we run the police, right? They are restricted to intervening when somebody is actually doing harm. Um, and they're useful for that purpose. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think state authorities might be uh, a, a good substitute. Um, I, I believe every state where there are nuclear power plants has some. Uh, appropriate organization for oversight. Um, and, you know, uh, once again, we don't have the FBI intervening into our lives uh, to, you know, except if we do something that is a federal crime. Um, and the, the, I think that should, and I think also that should be the discipline that's imposed on the EPA as well. They should be environmental enforcers, not permitters. One, uh, one, oh, sorry, I said that was the last one, but you had one more point that I want everyone to know about, which is about the policy toward waste. Uh, and in particular, this idea of, um, you know, glassifying the nuclear material and putting it way deep uh, in the seabeds. All right. The anti-nukes um, beat the drum about what are you going to do about the nuclear waste? And actually, this is only a question for nuclear power because it's the one source of power where you can actually deal with the waste. Uh, to deal with the waste from coal-fired power plants is simply impossible. Um, they produce literally millions of times more waste than uh, nuclear power plants do, including uh, not only vast quantities of toxic waste, chemical toxic waste, but even radioactive waste. Um, the, but nuclear power, because it is so compact, it is literally a, a million times more energy um, per kilogram in a nuclear power source as in uh, quality fossil fuel um, per, per unit kilogram. Uh, and therefore the amount of waste is also lower by about six orders of magnitude. Now, the environmentalists, when they decided to turn against nuclear power in the early 70s, um, identified the disposal of waste as a potential vulnerability for the industry. I remember reading a bulletin by the Sierra Club from 1974, in which they said a couple of things, very interesting things. Number one was that they opposed nuclear power. Sierra Club had supported nuclear power in the late 60s, for example, um, 
because they viewed it as, as a way of reducing fossil fuel pollution. But now they were making a, a decisive turn and they said, we're against it because it could lead to unnecessary economic growth. That's what they said. It could lead to, un in other words, the, the target, the, 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 the grievance they had against nuclear power was not the waste. It was the promotion of industrial progress. That very thing, its, its virtue was its crime. Okay. Then they said, a key vulnerability is the waste. If we can make it impossible for them to dispose of their waste, we can destroy the industry. And they said this very clear. Okay, this is a tactic. Okay, now the, the best way to dispose of nuclear waste uh, is to, first of all, reprocess it to get the plutonium that's in it out of it and so forth. Um, and then glassify the remainder. Uh, you can turn it into a kind of borosilicate glass, uh, which is not water soluble. And then you encase it in stainless steel canisters and you then go out to the middle of the ocean and drop it. And that stuff then goes down and it goes, it'll tunnel like a hundred meters into the mud at the bottom of the ocean. If we're talking the center of the ocean, you're talking about areas that have been geologically stable for literally hundreds of millions of years. Okay. It's not going anywhere. Okay. It's buried under a hundred meters of mud and 10,000 feet of water. The water itself takes 10,000 years to go from there to the shore of, of the ocean. Uh, it, it's done. Okay. The Carter administration, which was the first anti-nuclear administration that we had, uh, first of all, uh, shut down the nuclear waste reprocessing, okay? And then they shut down um, the idea of subseabed disposal. And uh, um, now then they said, but we will dispose of it on land because at that time you still couldn't be so crazy as to just be against any way of disposing it. Okay. Uh, and the, so they started this project uh, for uh, underground disposal of uh, nuclear wastes, but they put criteria on safe disposal that were absurd. I mean, literally, I mean, for example, they said, you know, we don't know that the United States is gonna always exist. Okay, civilizations rise and fall. There could be another ice age and our civilization could be swept away and the people, the nomads roaming North America after the ice age, they have to be protected from this nuclear waste too. Okay, and they might not speak English. They might not be able to read. How can you guarantee that this waste will never harm them? Uh, and so, Billions of dollars were spent on risk analysis and risk mitigation for the post ice age nomads, um, which is incredible because, you know, if you think how many lives you could have saved if you used those billions of dollars for child vaccination programs. Um, or it, not delaying nuclear plants. Or not delaying nuclear power plants or any other purpose you might think of. Fire escape inspections, body armors for the troops, swimming lessons. I mean, name it. Okay. There's any purpose you could think of is better than what that. And the, the uh, so, but you have these people banging the drums to prevent the establishment of this nuclear waste disposal facility. 
insisting, therefore, that the waste had to be held by the utilities on site where the reactors are, which tend to be reasonably close to metropolitan areas. So you're saying that it's safer to keep the nuclear waste in swimming pools in the suburbs of Chicago than under a mountain in Nevada, because there it might endanger the nomads of the post-Ice Age world. Okay, this is just bananas. And it, it completely exposes uh, the conceit of these people that they are trying to protect the public. In fact, their goal was to create as much apparent hazard with nuclear power as possible in order to make the public be against nuclear power. They didn't want to make it as safe as possible. They wanted to make it as dangerous as possible. They don't want to make it as cheap as possible. They want to make it as expensive as possible. That is their program. Okay. There's no two ways about it. And it's transparent. And, you know, here you have these people who say carbon emissions, global warming is an existential threat to human civilization. Okay. Existential threat means a threat to human existence. And they would rather incur that threat than put the nuclear waste under a mountain in Nevada. Now, the Navy, we need a nuclear Navy, okay? You can make electricity with natural gas if you like. You can make it with windmills if you really have to. You can make it with coal, okay, or nuclear power, okay? And a kilowatt's a kilowatt when it reaches the consumer, although unreliable electricity is inferior as far as the consumers are concerned. Um, that's another issue. But a submarine, nuclear submarine is a different animal than a diesel electric submarine. It is qualitatively superior because nuclear energy is not just an additional way to produce electricity. It is a new type of energy and it has new types of abilities. And a submarine on nuclear power can cruise the world around the world and stay submerged, or a diesel electric submarine has to come to the surface every 48 hours to recharge its batteries um, and therefore is vulnerable. So the Navy is not going to take, well, you want to use solar-powered submarines or you know, wind-powered submarines. You could have them surface and the windmills could charge them up. Um, you know, no, okay. Say, no. Okay, we're going to have nuclear submarines because anything less than a nuclear submarine is a second or third or fifth rate submarine. And the, so what do they do with their nuclear waste since there is allegedly no solution for storing nuclear waste? Well, they store their nuclear waste in salt domes in New Mexico. Okay, uh, you know, this is a solved problem. The French store their nuclear waste. This idea that there is no solution to storing nuclear waste is just total bunk. There are ways to store nuclear waste, either sub-seabed or underground in soil formations are particularly attractive because they keep any water out um, that people are doing. There's only no solution to nuclear waste when you have a political faction that is stopping you from implementing readily available solutions for nuclear waste. Well, even with the current state of things, it's not like the nuclear waste is killing people at all. I mean, even, even where it is. So I think it's, as, as you said before, it's the least, even in its current state, it's the least problematic waste that exists from energy Sure, because production. it's the most compact by far, Yeah, by a factor of a million. Um, now, 
you know, coal-fired power plants produce a lot of toxic waste in very large quantities. Uh, solar power, uh, people think that's waste-free. They're way off. Uh, the, uh, the produce the photovoltaic quality silicon involves uh, pro chemical processes using fluorine and fluorine compounds are emitted to the environment. And this is why most of this is now going on in China uh, and they've had massive fish kills and so forth from the release of uh, hydrofluoric acid, silicon fluoride compounds and things of this sort. Um, the, 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 Whereas nuclear power, the, the waste is compact, it's solid, uh, and there's uh, never been anyone uh, harmed by nuclear waste stored near a nuclear power plant. Now, I will comment on, I mean, there's only one nuclear accident that has actually ever harmed anyone, and that's Chernobyl. Okay, Three Mile Island? No. Uh, Three Mile Island, you know, the anti-nukes were saying if you had an accident in a pressurized water reactor, if you cool, okay, you can't have a runaway chain reaction, but what if the cooling system fails? Then the residual heat of the radioactive waste that's in the reactor, in the fuel elements, will cause them to melt down, and they'll melt down right through the eight-inch thick steel pressure vessel, then right down through the eight-foot thick containment building, and then through the earth right down to China. Well, at Three Mile Island, we actually did have a meltdown. The cooling system did fail uh, and the fuel elements did melt down and they melted their way about two inches into the eight inch thick pressure, steel pressure vessel and it stopped right there. They didn't go through the vessel, let alone the containment building, let alone to China. Okay, it's just bullshit. Okay, the uh, Fukushima, okay, now here, uh, so, so Three Mile Island is the only mega disaster in human history in which no one was hurt. Now, Fukushima, of course, 28,000 people were killed by the tidal wave and the earthquake, okay? Nobody was killed by the nuclear reactor, okay? Uh, while there was some radiation release, no one outside the plant gate got harmed uh, by a dose that was even remotely health endangering. Um, and there was nuclear waste stored in ponds near the Fukushima plant. And in fact, that is probably where the radiation that was released was released. Um, the, um, but even there in a disaster in which an entire city is destroyed, okay, no one is killed by a nuclear power plant, uh, and, and several of the nuclear power plants were destroyed in the sense of, uh, being made inoperable, but no one was harmed by it. Now, right now in Ukraine, uh, the Russian tanks attacked Zaporozhia nuclear power facility. They bombarded the containment buildings. They did not breach them. Okay. Um, so people were afraid there was going to be a nuclear disaster from that. These were literally being fired at by tanks, artillery, uh, and, and they weren't breached. Now, by the way, that is because the containment buildings used by nuclear power plants are actually modeled on the submarine pins that the Germans had used in World War II, uh, which were exposed to um, ferocious Allied bomber attack and never breached. Uh, the, um, that's another story. Anyway, 
So we. So you're going to you're going to talk about Chernobyl, though. Yeah. Now Chernobyl. Chernobyl did not have a containment building. Okay. Period. Didn't have a containment building, and it wasn't a light water reactor. Chernobyl was a graphite moderated reactor that was water cooled, but moderated by graphite. Okay. And it did not have this strong uh, negative temperature coefficient of reactivity. That is, the Rickover reactor, since they're moderated solely by water, if the water overheats, the reaction has to shut down. It cannot proceed physically. The Chernobyl reactor was graphite moderated, and it actually had a positive temperature coefficient of reactivity, and it didn't have a containment building. And so they did these goofy experiments and they had a steam explosion, which was able to blow open the reactor and the ordinary building surrounding it. Okay, you know, uh, and now you had hot graphite exposed to air. Uh, so the Chernobyl was not only unstable, it was flammable. Uh, and then you had a mechanism, which is combustion of the graphite to scatter the nuclear waste up into the air and scatter it around. And then you had um, some fallout produced, but that was a result of, of basically, um, well, a number of things. Um, one being that it wasn't a light water reactor, Second, that it had no containment building. And third is ridiculous management and, and disaster control. I mean, the Soviets, you know, um, believed that nuclear war could be fought. And so they had distributed in many centers iodine pills so that in the event of nuclear war, the people could be protected from fallout. So they actually had these things existing in their civil defense system. They didn't use them because it would look bad. Okay, oh. so the, the ultimate, I mean, there's engineering causes that I've named that are the cause of the Chernobyl accident, but also, frankly, the, the harm that was done is basically an example of harm done by the Soviet system. Definitely. Uh, the, the economist George Reisman had this line, uh, which was, you know, he just made the point that Soviet everything was a hazard to human life. Like you just think about how many people die from Soviet toasters was mm -hmm. his example. And just you know, exactly or, or Soviet apartment building construction. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, uh, unbelievable compared to, yeah. And even I think what, what's your sense of the death toll with Chernobyl? Because it's not I mean, people have the idea of it's millions of people. It's nothing resembling that. No, it's not. Uh, the. Uh, there are about a hundred odd people who were actually um, killed at Chernobyl. Uh, then there was a radiation release, but the conclusion that 4,000 people will die eventually of Chernobyl is based on the linear no threshold hypothesis. Um, and it's probably way off. I mean, I can imagine several hundred, uh, but not 4,000. And by consequence, and once again, this is a, uh, an example of how things can be done right or things can be done wrong. In China, where they operate 
coal-fired power plants without reasonable anti-pollution measures, uh, there's something like a million people die every year from the emissions of those plants. Okay, you, you would have to have a Chernobyl happening practically every day to literally every day for 4,000 times 365 is like a million or so um, the, to, to match the annual toll in China from fossil fuels used incorrectly. Okay. You know, yeah, I, I would. I, I mean, those. I, I I take issue with some of those studies, but I, I mean, I definitely do agree. It's it's by far the safest thing. And again, this is a total abuse. Like it's not right. like Chernobyl, as you said. It's not. This was never on the table for us. We never tried it. This is like the. It's like in an, an abusive attempt, and then this incompetent regime. So I mean, the numbers are irrelevant to us because they're not possible right. with us. So, but even there, like even the worst case scenario done by the worst people is tiny compared to the dangers of other forms of energy. Right. So obviously there's nothing resembling uh, safety. We gotta wrap up, but I just wanna give you an opportunity. Anything else you wanna say about this issue that the public should know about? Well, I just wanna um, expand on one of the points in my book, um, which is people say natural resources are limited. Uh, actually, I believe that natural resources do not exist. Uh, I think there's no such thing as a natural resource. There are only natural raw materials. Um, fossil fuels were not a resource until people discovered how to use them, how to drill oil and refine it and create machines that would run on the product. You know, no general staff in Napoleon's time would have looked at the oil capacity of a country as part of its relevant natural resources, okay? Fossil fuels became a natural resource when we developed the technology that could uh, produce and use them. Uranium was not a natural resource until we developed the science and the technology that allowed us to produce nuclear power. And just as fossil fuels, that the, the mastery of fossil fuel technology, which incorporates involve all sorts of things, uh, uh, mining technology, creating good steel and so forth. There's an entire long history that had to happen of technological development before fossil fuel power in the sense that we understand it could become a reality, drilling capacities, all this kind of thing. Um, so there's a whole uh, several thousand years of human civilization, technological development enabled the creation of fossil fuel power civilization. And fossil fuels then gave us enormous powers, including, for example, reliable electricity um, and, and many other things. Um, and with electricity, you can have, for instance, aluminum, which you cannot have unless you have electricity. That's why aluminum was unknown to science until 1820. Um, that, that, and then this fossil fuel powered civilization of of abundant energy, electricity, knowledge of chemistry. Okay, this is what created the potential for nuclear energy. And which now could potentially produce energy on a scale dwarfing what is readily available from fossil fuels as fossil fuels did compared to the wind and animal powered world that preceded them. And, you know, 
we needed fossil fuels to transcend that earlier world, okay? The, 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 the trees, the biomass power, okay, of England, the trees were becoming uh, uh, deforested until they figured out how to use coal, okay? Coal saved the forests. Oil saved the whales, okay? Um, the, uh, and the idea that we can go back, if we want to avoid fossil fuels, to go back to the things that were already proving inadequate at the time of the dawn of the fossil fuel age is categorically absurd. If we're ever going to go beyond fossil fuels, we got to go to the next step up, which is nuclear, and ultimately, I believe, fusion as well, uh, and is still in the future. Uh, so that's that's how this thing goes. I, I mean, I greatly support the thesis that you have set forth in your book, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, that the, the, the benefits that they have uh, given humanity are spectacular and the just beyond belief. And, uh, and now we have an opportunity to benefit humanity in a way, another step as great in its potential as fossil fuels were compared to that of the preceding age. And we, we cannot forgo this. I love it. Yeah. And I, you know, my next book, which I'm going to send you very soon is fossil future, but a big part of that is it's a fossil future doesn't mean fossil future forever. It means that the next several decades, and I think even the next couple of generations are necessarily going to be fossil fueled if humanity is maximizing its potential. But part of that is liberating nuclear. And part of that is, you know, all the innovation that fossil fuels makes possible makes nuclear possible. And so I'm, I'm very aligned. And I love the resources point. This is, you know, something I also stress. I like to say natural resources aren't naturally resources, right? They're just naturally uh, raw materials. So just one and final I, thing. I would make one more point if I would. Sure. Okay. Because uh, I actually gave a Zoom seminar to a university class a few weeks ago. And, uh, one of the students had read some of my writings and how I, you know, uh, don't view global warming as an existential threat and so forth. Um, I, I view it as a reality. I think global warming is real actually, but I don't think it's an existential threat. I, if the world warms another degree in the next century, it won't make a hill of beans. Uh, but, but that's not it. But I told him, look, let me tell you what the real threat, that humanity does threaten an existential threat, and it's war. Um, and this was a month ago when those of us who were really tuned in were aware that a war was shaping up in Europe, uh, but many other people weren't quite aware. Um, so it's war. And the, the thing that could kill you, okay, kill you, wreck your life, decisively is war. It won't be, you know, that the temperature rises another three tenths of a degree during the remainder of your life or something. Uh, and in other words, what was the cause of the major disasters of the 20th century? It wasn't climate change and it wasn't resource exhaustion, okay? Or overpopulation, okay? The, it was this idea that resources are limited that there wasn't enough for everyone. And so we have to use force to take it from them. That is 
this idea, which then manifested itself in a variety of forms, but that's fundamentally the underlying idea that drove the world to almost destroy itself in 1914 and 1939. And, and I think in a certain sense is the underlying idea, which is setting up the basis potentially for another world war. And the only way to prevent this is we have to refute this idea. We have to, and the way to refute it is to create a world of abundance, create a world of abundance. And um, by using our technology and the, the people who are trying to put chains on humanity and, and trying to create a situation of limited resources uh, are the, the, the greatest danger to, to humanity because we are not threatened by there being too many people. We are threatened by people who think there are too many people. And the, the thing that will make people think there are too many people is if they think there's not enough resources to go around. So abundance will save us. Great note to end on. And just let people know how to follow you and contact you, including any publishers watching who might be interested in publishing the case for nukes. Well, uh, my email is simply zubrin at aol.com. Uh, I also have a Twitter handle at Robert underscore Zubrin. All right, that'll do it. I find it amusing that you have the least futuristic email address of all time, even though you're one of the great futurists. Well, you know, see, uh, I'm actually a time traveler, okay? I don't come from this time. I come from another time. And um, does give me a certain point of view, seeing how things are here. I'm able to view this world a little bit from the outside. Um, but well, time travel does get old after a while. But any case, yeah, I was present at the creation, and that's why my email address is zubrinatal.com. Okay, zubrinatal.com. All right, well, I hope to see your book in print uh, soon, and I'm glad that I got a preview. And thanks for coming on Power Hour. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks again to Robert Zubrin for joining me. I'm going to stay in touch with him about this decriminalizing nuclear plan and hopefully get his help. Uh, I know there are lots of people in office who are interested in this issue, and I'm really grateful to Robert for making a contribution. And I want to keep, uh, and I will keep pushing this, this thing forward along with pushing forward energy freedom in general. Speaking of energy freedom, we have a lack of it in the world today, which is in part why we have an energy crisis, particularly in Europe, and then, you know, absolute war uh, going on, you know, waged by Russia against Ukraine. Uh, I've been a little bit out of writing about current events for the past four or so weeks. I've had a lot of different projects I've been working on, uh, but I have some more time now. So I've been writing recently. Make sure to check out my Substack newsletter, which is at alexepstein.substack.com. You can also sign up by going to energytalkingpoints.com and you can learn about all things energy there. Use the search function, search for pretty much anything. Highly, highly recommend uh, that. All right, let's see what else do we have. I don't know if I've shown this before, but this is a, I have a copy of Fossil Future in front of me. You can see it's, it's not like the final bound version, but it's, it's still pretty cool uh, to look at and for, yeah, it's been, a, it's been a long road, but it's been worth it. And it's coming out 
uh, May 24th, unless there's some absolute like global disaster. And even then I will do everything I can to make sure it comes out, but it's all, all on track right now. Everything is looking good for that. I'm going to have a lot of advanced copies that I'm going to send out. If you know of any influential people that you think would be open to the message and maybe not familiar with it, let me know. Uh, I'm happy to send them an advanced digital copy or an advanced physical copy um, for sure. What else? Well, as always, if you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, email me at alex at alexepstein.com. I want to encourage people again, go to energytalkingpoints.com, sign up for my newsletter. Also, you can go to alexepstein.substack.com. I'm going to continue. I, I've been, I haven't been updating that as much as usual, but I will be doing that more and more uh, going forward. And for example, the latest talking points on Russia and Ukraine and Europe's energy and security, I think are super, super important. Another thing we're seeing is because oil prices are going up, gasoline prices are going up, um, you're getting this really interesting and I think not honorable reaction from the Biden administration, which all of its policies and everything Joe Biden has supported energy-wise for the past 20 years is all about restricting the supply of oil on the market. So it's necessarily going to drive up prices. And that's really the point to make, to in some way force people to not use oil along with the other fossil fuels. But since it's so unpopular with the electorate, there's this idea, oh no, we haven't done anything. It's just oil, it's oil companies fault. They don't want to produce oil. They just want profits, et cetera, et cetera. So there's been this necessity to refute a lot of these little fallacies that are just dodges of the kind of obvious big picture issue. So you'll see those on energy talking points and also on my Twitter. I've been writing some, it's Friday, March 18th right now. I've written a bunch of things on Twitter recently and I'll write some longer things coming up. So just again, use that as a resource going forward. It's also going to be the home of the energy freedom platform, including nuclear decriminalization as I release that over the coming months. All right, if you haven't pre-ordered Fossil Future already, definitely do it. Uh, do it earlier rather than later. If you want, uh, you can get big bulk discounts. So if you go to my Substack, alexepstein.substack.com, you'll see one of the you know, top five or six stories is about pre-orders and bulk discounts. You'll see information there. There are all kinds of bonuses uh, that you'll have. And I think by the next Power Hour, I'll announce the next one. There's a really cool, panel discussion that I'm going to participate in that I'm going to make access to for a while, exclusive to pre-order to people who pre-order um, Fossil Future. And so I'll just say it involves two of the absolute uh, entrepreneurs and investors in the world that I admire most. Uh, and you will know who both of these guys are. And we're going to have, we're slated to have a really cool discussion in the middle of April, and we're going to record it professionally. And if you pre-order Fossil Future, among many other things, you will get access to that. So pre-order it, tell your friends to pre-order it, uh, spread the word. This is, you know, I, I spent three years engineering this thing as precisely as I could. I, I endured all of these delays, sometimes caused the delays myself, uh, because I believe this is, you know, I wanted to create the ultimate tool for changing minds about fossil fuels, about how to think about energy in a pro-human way and about energy freedom. So I'm really proud of what's been engineered. Uh, you know, books are sold as commodities, so you can pay whatever it is, 20 bucks, 22 bucks, whatever it costs on the market, and you can change different minds, uh, many minds, and just by referring people to it, let alone buying it for people. Speaking of buying it for people, there's a really cool project that I'm doing in partnership with Young America's Foundation, 
We are giving away copies of Fossil Future to students. We're planning on giving away at least 5,000. Students and educators as well can sign up at yaf.org slash fossil future, yaf.org slash fossil future. And if you want to contribute to this program, if you go to that same website, yaf.org slash fossil future, you can see how to write them a check and just make sure it says something about the fossil fuel future project on it. And then that will help us give away even more of these books. This is another way in which you know, ultimately we're hoping to change tens of thousands, maybe ultimately even hundreds of thousands of young minds and educators' minds on this issue. I think we now have the resource to do it. So very excited to spread this around. And it's only only two more months. And even if you've been impatient, it's nothing compared to how impatient I have been. All right, that is it for this week. I'm not sure what the next power hour is gonna be, but I have a couple of good ideas in the pipeline. So I should be back in not too much time. Uh, until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour, the antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.